Welcome to episode two of Regulatory Ramblings. Today's going to be the first of a two-part interview with Ron Yu and Fred Chan. Ron is director of Arctic Aurora Advisory Services and the co-designer of Tarad, which is an NFT risk assessment platform. Ron has also taught IP law, particularly patent law and internet law at the postgraduate level here at HKU. And this June, he has a book coming out with Professor Brian Mercurio at Chinese U on entitled Regulating Cross-Border Data Flows, Issues, Challenges, and Impact. With Ron is Fred Chan. Fred is also the co-designer of Tarid, and he's a chartered accountant, forensic cater, cybersecurity consultant, and has 20 years of experience in high-tech investigations and regulatory compliance and cross-border financial investigations across the world. So we're going to be talking with them today for a treat on NFT risk assessment and mapping, AI and smart contracts, the impact of technology on the legal profession, as well as the provision of blockchain services by law firms. So gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, in, in an op-ed piece that you guys did recently for, uh, for in-house community entitled NFT Risk, Connecting the Dots, you say, while most people think of funny, pricey pieces of digital art when they hear the term NFT, non-fungible tokens, they're being employed in an increasingly number, increasing number of applications, including games, music, and even automobiles. Alfa Romeo announced its subcompact Tonal SUV will include an NFT that will record vehicle data generating a certificate can be used to assure the car has been properly maintained. In addition, NFT arts are used as collateral for financing where lenders could foreclose and own the NFT of a defaulted loan at a darn good price, quote-unquote. New, new beneficial applications of NFTs are emerging. For instance, NFTs linked to physical art made by traditional ind indigenous artists can be listed on online marketplaces offering these artists a global audience that would otherwise be inaccessible to them. So could, could you flesh out the core part of the crux of your article in terms of what the associated risks are? Well, there are risks for NFTs on multiple levels. Okay, so we could start with the asset itself, and um, this would include the link to the asset, uh, as well as some of the other characteristics that are inherent in the asset. The second area would be business-related risk, and essentially, who are the parties you are dealing with? Are they reputable? Have they been um, guilty of, for example, wash trading or uh, insider trading or other kinds of fraud? Then you have more sophisticated uh, considerations in terms of technology, cybersecurity, legality, and within legality, you have both general as well as jurisdiction-specific issues. All right. And in, in terms of those jurisdictional issues, is that, is that where data transfer becomes an issue? You have data transfer primarily. Correct. Because of the turf wars between different regulators. Correct. Yep. Correct. Okay. It seems to me that... I mean, NFTs are the dish du jour right now. Everyone's talking about them. But... I mean, I remember over a decade ago, there was a book that came out by uh, 
I think a USC law professor, the Siva Vaidyanathan, copyrights and copy wrongs. The, essentially, what are people purchasing when they purchase an NFT? What do they have ownership of? Or, or are they or, are they merely purchasing access, not necessarily the underlying access, asset? Well, there's good questions, right? I mean, um, most of the time we've heard about NFTs about um, a picture file, JPEG file, or a PFP, you know, uh, that you can use with your uh, social media account. And um, so uh, some of us may have hard to grab the concept, actually, while I'm buying, I, I, am I just buying the right to use a JPEG file? What if somebody copy it and use it, you know, uh, in uh, themselves, right? And I've seen a, another person, person, so social media account using my PFP pictures. It could happen. I mean, some of this is also dependent on how you acquire the NFT and the uh, contract terms under which you have acquired this particular uh, piece of uh, digital, uh, as people, some would call it digital asset. Um, I happen to like to think of NFTs uh, in the way you might think of, let's say, a library card, sorry, library um, record for a book, okay? It tells you that this record is associated with this book. It tells you that the book is supposedly on this shelf over there, but it is very possible that some of this records may be incorrect. For example, if I took out this restatement of law um, book over there and Brought it over, brought it over to read at the corner of this room. Um, the the library record would not necessarily show that, or perhaps if um, I put it back in the wrong shelf, the library record would not reflect that. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Then it's a matter of logging, and that which shows up as available is actually either not, or it's either been checked out or misplaced. Um, Regarding, um, so then th this intersects then with algorithms, AI, and, and smart contracts. And physical provenance, okay, because um, you actually have to, well, if it's, it's a physical asset, then you would also have to have some kinds of uh, information of some sort that this is, for example, an authentic copy of whatever. Um, there is, um, in Hong Kong, there is a, initiative uh, in the art world called Provenio Art Tech, uh, which Fred and I happen to be working on. And this one is uh, focused on looking at art provenance for art-related uh, NFTs or using the NFTs as a means of uh, helping to enhance the provenance of art, both digital as well as physical. And they're working with uh, a couple of uh, galleries uh, and the galleries would provide um, some of the certification of authenticity. Okay, and I mean, so party A comes, one industry body comes up with their own certification, others do the same. Then whose imprimatur of quality and verification does one trust? Or is it okay if different bodies issue different standards? I think um, the pro I think if uh, the 
all of this will depend on the reputation of these bodies involved. Um, there are a lot of bodies, for example, in the cybersecurity space that are involved. If Fred can talk about that. Yeah, I, I guess um, the, um, the purpose of that is to, um, part of it is educational as well, right? Um, to make people aware what exactly are they buying um, an NFT, you know, um, is it, um, and again, the art provides a very good um, um, platform to bring up the questions and to try to find an answer for that. Like when I buy a painting, uh, an NFT of the painting, do I actually own the real painting or just the picture file of that painting? And out of the NFT that I purchase, which is on, you know, it gives, which provides a lot of, you know, good features like um, immutable and the permanent record of my ownership. Yeah. Um, what exactly did I buy? And also, what rights that I got out of that purchase. Um, so, so, so through that, the first questions was provenance, right? Um, whether the painting, the physical painting, the underlying SS is legit um, and, um, and the, like the creator of that painting is kind of, you know, um, acknowledge that uh, transactions, so to speak. So, so the provenance provide a good um, um, kind of uh, um, traceability, apart from the, you know, the NFT, the digital token that you know sitting on the blockchain. Then, um, I guess it's um, something that um, it's been done in the physical world, but it just now we're on a slightly different settings involving the blockchain, which supposedly enhanced the you know, all these um, um, transactions uh, they've done in the past with the you know, permanent record um, and transparency as well. Um, and so I guess that's, that's why we have this idea of kind of building a trusted body to provide that kind of a provenance, you know. NFTs, <coughs> sorry, NFTs in this instance could function as um, shall I say, a mark of origin, okay, a designation of origin. You see this in um, trademark law. Um, for those of, uh, those of you who are in um, IP uh, would be familiar with the Arsenal and Reed case where it was established that a trademark is a mark of origin. Here the um, NFT could also be used as a mark of origin or designation of origin, okay. But in this case, uh, as compared to a trademark, an NFT does have certain advantages, uh, notably the fact that you have a hashed token and the hash being um, very you know, difficult to reverse engineer. And of course, um, it would also be able to uh, track certain uh, usage. And if there's any modification, um, the hash would be changed um, to. So as a piece of evidence, um, NFTs uh, also have that function as well. Um, and so you also, so you're starting to see people thinking of using NFTs in this kind of application too. Uh, you started earlier with um, non-art applications of NFTs. Okay, now you have people in this emerging area of decentralized science or DSI who are thinking of using NFTs to, um, you know, mark the origin of certain kinds of samples, information, etc., so that they can um, exchange amongst themselves and the NFT would be the um, essentially here the mark of origin for the particular um, sample or data etc. Okay, 
It's often said, though, that technology business moves at its own rate and then the law catches up. Has the law caught up in this instance? I think they're trying to catch up very, but I think it's quite a, they're going to have to catch up. Okay, since the uh, UST and Luna uh, debacle of, uh, debacle of uh, the last fortnight, um, you see, suddenly you see all these um, regulators saying, oh, we need crypto regulation, we need to look at this area very carefully. Um, so it's a good thing that they, you know, people are recognizing the need to do this, but the problems are that these um, uh, questions uh, that they're going to have to ask are very um, difficult and um, very um, hard to map out. And, you know, for example, um, it has been alleged that uh, some of the people involved in Luna have been doing insider trading. Um, they have been some questions as uh, the Lunar uh, Foundation, LFG, um, what they were doing, they claim that they spent $3 billion in Bitcoin to prop up Luna, but there is no audited record. So a lot of this is actually very hard to prove. And then, um, you know, the fact that this is also a very geographically inter, uh, dispersed um, area, okay, with people all over the globe who are involved, um, you know, trying to enforce is also very difficult. So, and, and finally, um, you would have to have a certain degree of harmonization of uh, certain concepts. Um, for example, um, you know, if wash trading, as an example, is it all uniformly defined? Um, and is it all uniformly uh, criminal, criminalized? In different jurisdictions, just an example. So, you know, so otherwise, uh, you know, it's it, it. You would have to have some kind of coordination amongst these bodies, and that would be, uh, you know, that would be very difficult. Prior occasions, you and I have spoken about law firms offering smart contracts and and blockchain services. You've also pointed out that um, smart contracts, perhaps without any contract, don't don't prepare for any eventuality and that there are certain um, there are certain material terms that are hard to encompass with algorithms and that that's where smart contracts fall short could you could you flesh that out sure um, or certain exceptions things like um, force majeure act of God clauses that those are those are hard to fit in to the rubric of uh, Smart contract. Okay. Well, where would you like me to start with the uh, offering of services or smart contracts or? Uh... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're smart contracts fall short. You know, the deficiencies, okay. the pitfalls. Okay. Smart contracts are often described as um, vending machine type services. Okay. You press a button and you get a can of, you know, soda or a bag of chips, uh, crisps for the English speakers. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, but that ship has sailed. Smart contracts have become quite a bit more sophisticated. But there are certain things that a computer at this stage of time cannot really do. Okay, so it doesn't have uh, the certain, uh, the flexibility of 
parties. Like if you come up to a contract and you go, well, what does this term mean? The parties can, um, you know, get together and talk about it. All right. Uh, a, a contract, a smart contract may not have that flexibility programmed in. Okay. So, it's, you know, if, um, you know, I, I can't think of, so, so if you, if you have a, um, you know, force majeure as an example. Okay. So, I mean, let's reason by analogy. Old days, an associate gets told to draft a contract. Okay. They will look at the firm's database of contracts. They're, you know, the contracts they've done for this client or in this space before. They will adapt those contracts to the needs of the present client. Can that aspect not be solved with machine learning and adaptability in that sense that, that as, as the algorithm learns, the contract can be tailored? Are you, are you adding in an AI element to the smart contract now? Because uh, machine learning well, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what people are talking about. That, and, and, and consequently, they're saying that that is what might pose a threat to the legal field. Um, okay. First off, um, machine learning or big data and AI in legality in general is, a, is something that you have to approach very carefully. Okay. Um, there are lawsuits that have happened in America, uh, Australia. And um, there are quite a few other um, uh, other areas where there has been misuse of machine learning, and this was uh, because there are so many things that can potentially go wrong. Uh, machine learning requires a lot of data. The data has to be appropriate for the usage case. Okay, you have the case in America, in Indiana, where people IBM was creating a system for the state of Indiana, but they were using data from other states. The problem was, was the data from the other states was not truly applicable to the situation in Indiana. As a result, you had a lot of people who were denied, um, denied benefits, okay, and uh, in, incorrectly denied benefits, I might add. Okay, there is a whole lot of these cases. They also have something similar, had something similar in uh, Australia as well. So you have to be a little careful with um, AI, okay, and so 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 that that's my caveat. So, so, so you were saying, and um, I think it's a good question is why because um, uh, a lot of people they're getting conf they're not really understand about smart contract, right? And it's and it, especially in the legal profession uh, is a good starting point because traditionally we're dealing with the real world, and the smart contract is somehow um, in the online world, all right? And it seems to be, um, the smart contract seems to be the link between the real world and the online world. And in a nutshell, smart contract is pretty much like a program code, meaning program, pretty much, meaning you have input and then the protocol and the output. So to execute a smart contract, then we need to know how does the contract get its input then to perform the protocol processing, produce the output, which is the executions of the, uh, the terms, the TNCs that, or the clause that you just mentioned, you know, to respond to that scenario, which is part of the input. So it, back to reality. So it means the smart contract is good in its setting, meaning um, just like um, NFT, for example, right? There is a royalty clause. How does the creator um, 
collect those royalties um, from the you know subsequent transactions, uh, buy and sell transactions. So it goes back down to okay, how does that transaction happen and where? So um, if it's somehow um, you know um, like you and me, right? Um, we agreed to purchase, but supposing this should be uh, online, you know, through various kind of you know. Um, online communications, right? So as long as the transaction has been done online through the blockchain, and then um, that input will be input through the smart contract and then triggering the um, collections of the royalty. And according to what's been written on the contract, like the address of the collect collection address, right? Then that royalty will go to that particular address. So this is how it functions, right? And when it comes to what's been, what closes that um, we could write into the program. It's, I guess, it's the same considerations. How to define that, where, and how to define that input and execute that input, you know, from the processing and produce the output. But if you are modifying the contract for a particular, because because you know a lot of times the template, the standard template, does not always apply to a particular. Which is why you see clauses in contracts that make no sense and. And seem odd given That's the correct. Sub subject. That's yeah. right. But if you're going to do that, um, then you are actually if and there's a smart contract associated with it, then you actually have a software development issue in con in addition to the legal um, modifications that you're going to undertake, because you have to you have to tell the programmer or whoever is developing the smart contract. Uh, modifying the smart contract, what to do. Now, there are several issues here. One, um, is the lawyer capable of doing this? Okay, probably, maybe, maybe not. If he or she is incapable of doing it, or they are incapable of doing it, um, can they communicate to a developer? that? Okay, let me give you a very, and, and if you miss out certain scenarios, um, that could be a problem because the developer cannot be expected to consider all the potential legal scenarios. Let me give you an example. Let's say you wanted to do um, check infringement of two images, okay? OpenSea, by the way, does this with some of its NFTs. They want to check, you know, they check the uh, JPEGs to if they are identical or not. But let's just say we have two digital images and we call them, and these are tokens, fungible, to uh, these are tokens, right? Now, one thing that you could do to check infringement is to see are they the same? Are they identical? Okay, now, if they are identical, you actually have three potential scenarios. One, that they are, one is a copy of the other. The second scenario is that both are copies. The third scenario is that both are legitimate copies. Now, notice earlier I said, Fungible. I didn't say non-fungible. Fungible. So you could actually have two copies of two images, and they could be identical. Now, the lawyer would have to tell the programmer what you know all these scenarios because if you know if he is or she is presented with a case of well, I've got this token, and this is identical to this token. Do I have an infringement? He has to consider all these different scenarios in a, and the possibility that you know they're. There could be one copy, two copies, or both are legitimate. And he has to com communicate this to the developer because the developer 
probably might not uh, know this. And then if there are legal implications, the, the lawyer would also have to communicate to the developer what to do next. Coming back to what you were saying, that it's, it's not realistic to expect the developer to foresee every contingency, every eventuality, anything that could go wrong. But, I mean, if I were to analogize to the world of contract law, it's often said European contracts are much shorter. They work until they don't, until something comes up. In the Anglophile, in the common law world, in the US and UK, contracts tend to be a lot larger. They want to envision everything that goes wrong. That, but even that's not foolproof. Yes. Right. Okay. So if we analogize to the world of smart contracts, aren't we just talking about amending the algorithm to factor in, maybe not all, it's impossible to catch them all scenarios, but to envision as many of the scenarios as you've encountered based on past experience and write the algorithm accordingly? Are we not talking about just amending the algorithm? I'm not a legal, I don't have a legal background, but I think... As you learn, you amend. Yep. I, yes, I think it's a matter of, back to my input and output scenario, right? So it will work if the parameters are the same, in the same environment, right? Meaning, until the day that we are actually able to work, say, a lot of, like metaverse, right? A lot of people envision one day I'll, instead of going back to the my office, I'm log in and go to the office in the metaverse, right? So until that kinds of become the, the, the daily life, so everything happened in the metaverse, which can digitize all this scenario, and then Mufit has input through that smart contract, then it will work. Because we don't have, we don't, because that, until that time, we don't need to concern about the link between the real world and the online world. Because then it's seamless. Exactly. Yeah. So right now, um, it's, we're still kind of in the, in the process of breach, migration or transition, put it that way. But during that process, there are still issues that we need to deal with the, online world, uh, the, the real world and the online world and how to breach these gaps. And just take the NFT as an example, right? So we have in the real world, we don't we deal with the same issues in the real world. Like if you buy a painting from auction house, you have to make you have to consider the same issues: ownerships, royalties, contractual contracts. Whether I'm buying the real paintings or the fake one, all even, these. Even though it's a digital form. Yes. Now we have to take care of this, uh, hope, hoping that the NFT will help to address some of these issues. Like ownership, for example, is a good one because. Um, it's transparent, and I can show. I, I, and and the digital file itself is much easier to prove the uh, the duplications and uh, whether it's a fugazi, right, um, from the real world. Uh, because, but again, provided, uh, how do you link up the NFT to the real painting? Or it would be so. So that's one scenario. Second scenario is if you just purchase some uh, digital art, so there's only one copy in. Uh, one JPEG file in the world, that's much far much more easier to, to prove because of the hash, you know, um, of that file. Basically, it's um, um, in, uh, with the NFT stating that hash in the token, then um, 
basically it proves the ownership of that uh, JPEG file uh, um, to that particular wallet, really. That this is the sole authentic digital copy. You know, because I think what you said was the, the, the crux here. People are struggling to see the link between the physical world and, and the digital world in this context. And that's why we were talking about that uh, Provenio and, uh, you know, to try to at least bridge some of the uncertainty between the physical and digital world gap. Okay. To go back to your question about modifying the uh, contract with a smart, a smarter smart contract, um, you actually have a real danger when you modify another piece of software that um, it will not work. Okay. I mean, you, you've probably seen some contracts that you know if that some of the clauses logically make no sense when they're put together. I and mean, some different parts of the contract undermine or yes make operation of other parts of the contract impossible. Correct. So if you actually don't... Because they were written at different times, the law was different. Correct. So if you incorporate this into software, you could end up with, a you know, just the software just going into a loop because it can't operate. But then isn't that where the software people do their debugging? I mean, because the, the layperson just wants it to work. They want the final product and they want it to, to use it for their purposes. So they, they would say, okay, fine, software guy, come in here, debug it. Some of the soft it depends on whether the software guide can debug it, okay? Because that 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 requires a certain degree of um, capacity. They would also have to do, uh, requires a certain um, let's say knowledge of the language, okay? So let's say it was an old um, piece of mainframe software, and you know, had this you know mainframe from the 1970s still running, okay? And you have the uh, as is the case at many banks, right? So. If you have a question, okay, well, this thing's not working. I have to debug it. You have to find somebody who can read some of these, you know, older programs like COBOL and Fortran. That's the first problem, okay? And that's not a trivial problem, okay, given that a lot of these people are now, you know, 60 or 70 years old. I mean, or did, I mean it's literally... I, I see the job postings for... Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, so you have to looking, get somebody yeah. to be able to do this, and you have to have them, you know, being able to... Um, understand the platform that it's being used on um, because, you know, um, some people can, you know, program in Fortran, but then you say, oh, by the way, it's running on a mainframe. Can you also do some other things? And they would say, well, um, I have to know MVS on top of this or VM or whatever, uh, you know. Um, that, that, you know, I mean, I mean, it depends on, you know, what you're expecting. The other thing with, um, you know, patching is that um, sometimes if you don't patch properly, uh, that can cause problems too. Okay, it's, it's a bit like um, you know, you've seen some people they put in a patch and then the patch causes you know other problems that they you know the developers didn't expect. Okay, and it's because the de debuggers maybe they were just rushed, they did a sloppy job, or they did something not understanding what the original programmers had wanted to do, and as a result they, they introduced a new bug unintentionally? I think it's a good question in a sense of, you know, the expectations from people about technology. And in... Because they just want the application to work. Yeah. And to do their business. And when it comes to debugging, I mean, we're still in debugging mode right now. I mean, look at, you know, the, the OS you're using. I mean, it just keeps coming up with a new version. I mean, um, it's never going to be perfect, I would say. It's just how do you address the risk and your risk exposure? To what extent you want to uh, you want the program to control 
that particular um, transactions or scenario. Um, and, and we talk about debugging, not to mention there are a lot of zero days, right? <laughs> People, um, whenever the, there's always um, 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 a, a way to exploit, you know, a fault of the or the language, you know, um, of a co program code, right? So it, it one needs to decide, you know, um, um, how to diversify the risk, right? And and it's it's just I guess that risk is and that's considering the same as you know what nowadays really I mean using computer using a um, or, or a cloud infrastructure I mean the the technical component may be different but the concept is the same the principle is the same just like the backup we talked about before we start right so the diff okay so with smart contracts there's a legal aspect to it there's a technology aspect to it right. There is, um, sorry to, to also interrupt, any kind of software, you have um, two other aspects to consider, um, compatibility with other programs that you have to interact with, okay? Because um, any kind of program nowadays may have to interact with, let's say, the operating system. But if you introduce um, some other kinds of interactions with other software, um, who knows whether what might happen. Um, the second thing, that you have to consider is um, if the software itself, um, you're also assuming the software has been, you know, fully debugged um, when you put this thing out. And if it's not, if it's rushed or, out. Or enough, yeah. debugged enough. Yeah. yeah, and if it's rushed out, that could also be a problem. And another example um, we can consider is just like the UST Luna, you know, Dabico, right? Um, supposingly, it's a pack, so I mean, um, one UST is supposed to be packed with one USD, right? And people expect, you know, there's a protocol behind to, you know, maintain the pack, right? But it turns out it's a manual process and a manual decision process as well. Um, a lot of people look back, uh, what could be better? You know, what would happen? Uh, what would be better to save the, uh, the pack during the, the 48 hours of the collapse, right? Um, it was said that um, one thing that um, when um, the UST came down to 0 0.95, it's still within the pact, right? But again, back to the you know the the the, the measure was in terms of using the f the the foundation fund to maintain the pact. At what point is the most effective? Would it be zero point ninety five, or when it, or when it back down, drop down to zero point six? And who made that decision? So a lot of discussion we made uh, about the whole scenario was: it will work if the fund actually start to maintain the pack when it reached zero point ninety five, instead of waiting, uh, or instead of pretty much gave up, you know, and let let the UST you know, kind of free fall to wherever it is right now. And they did actually spend the reservate the fund to, to, you know, to buy, you know, to keep the pack, but it seems it was too late. And we'll talk about, you know, um, the whole, the entire thir 3 billion US of, you know, value being used to save the pack. They ran out of time. I mean, really. 
we've spoken in the past about how really when you're dealing with smart contracts, you're dealing with the software model, the model of the software industry, and the model of the legal profession. And software companies will frequently give out patches for free. I believe that is the norm. Uh, that's, and consequently, consumers expect it. That if I'm going to buy the online version of the Microsoft suite for my laptop, uh, I can buy the hard copy, ver I can buy the CD-ROM version, but then I'm stuck with that version for all perpetuity. Or I can pay the annual licensing fee for the online version and free updates for the rest of the use of my machine. Uh, you do that, but if it's a law firm providing the patch, if it's a law firm providing the update, well, they're going to charge their bare minimum of an hourly rate, which could be up to a thousand US dollars. But then who's going to put up with that? That's a good question. That's the, that's the problem that law firms will have to consider is that the software models and the economics of software are quite different from the economics of your traditional law firm. There are, in terms of the patches, um, there is a lot of people are expecting uh, proactive patching. Or for example, when uh, Apple, for instance, sends you an update to update your uh, iOS, okay, it will tell you, well, there's a risk that if you do this on a certain time when the moon is in a certain phase, your phone is going to crash, okay? Uh, you, know, and, you know, and Jupiter aligns with Mars and it's the age of Aquarius. Um, <laughs> but... But they, you know, but it will. You're expecting a certain amount of proactivity in this activity. Yes, free. free, correct. Um, will law firm clients ex expect this? I think that's just a matter of. Um, well, depends. Um, you know, I, I think it's just going to depend, and it's it's very early days, and uh, it's something that has to be looked at. Um, the other thing, the other thing that you you also have with um, a smart contract, especially if you married it with, let's say, you decide to marry it with AI and automation. Well, actually, auto, uh, I should say smart contract is automation. Sorry, um, you do have certain liabilities with software. You know that um, that you have to be a little careful with. I mean, I mean, if you have a, you know, a an application and uh, you know that you've developed for somebody um, you know regardless of who takes liability if it's a critical application for let's say a bank and it crashes I mean that 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 could be uh, a near existential crisis for some departments okay so so you have to consider that now if you're going to be developing these kinds of um, software and a smart contract is software um, who is going to, you know, where is the liability going to fall? Okay, that's a good question. Mm -hmm.